Welcome to the Renaissance Podcast, and thank you for joining with us to worship and learn more about God. We are so excited to have you be a part of this week's service. For more podcasts and services from past weeks, or to join us online on Sunday mornings, check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Now, enjoy the message. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Joe, and I'm one of the leaders here. And today we're going to continue our Bible study in the book of Galatians. So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, we're going to put the words up on the screen for you to read along. And if you don't have a Bible with you but want to use a hard Bible underneath one of the seats around you, you may be able to find a black hardback Bible. You can turn to page 973 in that Bible to find Galatians. And what we're doing is picking up from where we left off last week. The last several weeks we've been in this book, Galatians, and we've worked our way through two different chapters. And what we've learned so far is this, is that the author of the book, and it's actually a letter that he's written to the churches in a region called Galatia, the author, a man named the Apostle Paul, has written this letter to address some issues that have arisen in the church. And really that is the primary reason Paul has written most of his letters in the New Testament is that he, there are issues in the church, and he's a leader, and sometimes as a leader, uh, crap runs uphill, and you, if you're the leader, you got to squeegee it down, and that's what Paul is doing here in the book of Galatians. He's squeegeeing it down as it's running uphill and addressing these issues that have arisen through false teachers that came into the church under the guise of men with a true message. And I believe that what Paul is doing is attempting to address three different questions that the Galatian Christians had, and I would suggest that many of us even have as well. And we won't find these questions within the text. They're not explicit there, but I believe they are implied. And and these questions are this. Number one, how does a person become a Christian? Second one is this. How does a person stay a Christian? A Christian. Once having become a Christian, how do you remain one? And number three, how does a person mature or grow as a Christian? Again, you don't find these questions written down in the book of Galatians, but I believe Paul is addressing these questions that people have in the things that he's writing. And we'll find out what the answer is, I believe, uh, as we study our text today. Now, what Paul has done in Galatians 3, as he's beginning to teach the people why they should believe what he has believed, what he originally taught them. He takes them back to the scriptures, the Old Testament. Now, it's important for us to know that for the, the original readers of the New Testament, people like Paul and the, the churches that he wrote to, they did not have the Bible as we have it today. They didn't have a New Testament. It was still being written at the time. So what they had as their Bible, as their scriptures, was the Old Testament. And so for Paul to make an argument from the scriptures to them, he had to go back to the Old Testament. And he begins this portion of his letter uh, with a theological treatise as to why the things he said so far are true. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 were kind of practical matters of dealing with the issues that had arisen, and now he begins his theological argument. And of course, to find and refine and formulate his theology, he goes to the scriptures. And he takes them to a story of a man named Abraham, who the Jews would be very familiar with because they believe that Abraham was the father of their faith. They believe that he was the father of their nations. They, they, their nation, they call him the father of 
the faith full. And Abraham, we're told, was promised by God at one point in Genesis chapter 15, and this is the passage of of the Old Testament that Paul references, that God promised to him that one day he would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. He said to Abraham, I want you to go up on this mountain and look all around you and see the land. I'm going to give all of this land to you, and I want you to look up into the sky and see all the stars in the night sky and begin to count them. And at some point he loses count because there's too many of them to count. And God says, as numerous as these stars are in the sky, that's how populous this land will be with your descendants. Now, the crazy thing about this is that at this time, Abraham and his wife are still childless, and they're already creeping up there in age. So you can imagine the sweat breaking out on Sarah, his wife's brow, when she hears the news that they're going to have Lots and lots of children. Well, what Paul references here in Galatians 3 is that the, the, the profound and interesting and important thing for us to know about Abraham is that when God made this promise to him, even though he had no children of his own yet, even though he and his wife were getting very old, he still believed God. And what God did for Abraham was credit it to him as a righteous thing. And not just as a righteous thing that he'd done, but he credited it to him as though Abraham were completely righteous, simply because he believed God. Now, this is the biblical scriptural underpinning that Paul is making here for the Galatians. And I want to jump in now to verse 1 of chapter 3 to get to uh, the beginning of his argument here as to what he says. He says in verse 1, Oh, foolish Galatians, what a way to make friends, isn't it? Uh, J.B. Phillips translates this as, you dear idiot Galatians. Now, the word foolish doesn't literally mean idiot or moron or stupid. It, it actually has to do with someone who's heard something but, but had trouble understanding what they were hearing. It's kind of like when my wife is telling me about how she feels. I hear every word that is coming out of her mouth. I just have no idea what she's talking about. It's kind of like that. It's it's hearing it, but misunderstanding it. Or or, or it could also describe someone who's heard and understood, but then completely forgot what they heard and understood. It's like when my wife says, hey, Joe, can you take the trash out? And why there's still a bag sitting in our kitchen right now. It's because I heard and understood, but I forgot that's what I was to do. This is what Paul is saying to them. At some point in time, you became foolish. You forgot what you heard, or maybe you misunderstood. And I don't think Paul believes that because he's about to tell them, I made it very plain to you uh, the truth about who Jesus is. And so he, he says, you foolish Galatians, have you forgotten? And I want to make a quick side point and say that it is completely okay for us to misunderstand the things that we hear in church that we read in the Bible, that we have in conversations with other scriptures, because spiritual things are, the Bible says this, hard to understand. Shoot, I have trouble understanding some of the songs we sing on Sunday. It's hard for us to understand something, and that's completely okay. What is not okay, and this is what Paul is driving at here and what the Galatians have done, it is not okay for us to have heard the good news about Jesus, that he has come and washed away all of our sins, that there's no condemnation in him, and that the only way to be acceptable to God is through faith. It's not okay to have heard that and believed that and then to forget that and walk away from that. Or now place expectations on others that they should begin to 
look a little bit more like me because I have grown in my faith. It's not okay to do that sort of thing. And that's what's happening here. So Paul goes on and says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has hypnotized you? The word bewitched carries with it this idea of being hypnotized by a serpent. And I don't know if that's a real thing or not. You see it in some of the movies, Indiana Jones, where he falls in the pit and there's the snakes and he's staring at the one and it's kind of hypnotized him. I don't know if that's a real thing or not, but it's in the movie, so it probably is true, right? <laughs> but but it, 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 it's this idea of being hypnotized by a serpent and its gaze is, is so charming that we cannot look away from it. And so often... It's so easy for us to fall out of the truth because lies are so scintillating. If you've kept up at all with the, the tragic tale of Johnny Depp and Amber Heard and watched any of these things, it, it, it's crazy because nobody knows who's telling the truth. But I sure do want to hear all the lies that they're telling. There's something about that that, that is... That, that pulls us in and draws us close to it, that bewitches us, Paul would say. It hypnotizes us. And the problem with, with that sort of thing is that it's really hard to look away. The only way to overcome that which bewitches us is to look at Jesus, to keep our eyes on him, keep our eyes on Jesus, the crucified one. As Paul says here in verse one, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now he's not saying you people were there and you saw him hanging on a cross. What he's telling them is this, when I came to you and I preached to you before, it was as though I waved a large placard with Jesus Christ crucified on it in front of all of your faces and showed you that he was crucified for you. It was as though I paid for billboards all over town. I liked, shared, commented on all of your posts and said this comment, Jesus was crucified for you. He says, I made it plain in your faces, and yet somehow you've looked away from it. it this, this word crucified could literally also be translated the crucified one. Jesus was publicly portrayed as the crucified one. And why is that phrase important? Because if we think of Jesus as just that, the crucified one, if we keep that at the forefront of our thoughts, which is what I am saying when I say keep our focus on him, it will change the way that we think about the way God loves us. It will change the way we think about the way he forgives us. It will change the way we think about condemnation. It will change the way I think about other people. It's easy for me to think good about the people that I love. Well, yes, Jesus was crucified for them. But the people I have trouble with, the people I got beef with, and who got beef with me, it's hard to think of Jesus hanging on the cross for them. But if we keep him at the forefront of our thoughts as the crucified one, and we see him hanging there and dying for, for even our enemies, it changes the way we think about them completely. He says, I publicly portrayed him as crucified. I, I made a, a really big deal about him. And we try to do this here every Sunday at Renaissance. We, we try to craft our, our sermons around this idea that Jesus is the most important thing. We try to sing the songs that we sing around the idea that Jesus is the most important thing because we really believe that. And I want to say this as a pastor, that you should be really careful with the YouTube preachers you listen to. 
and the TV preachers you listen to. Not because we want you to get all of your information from here. Please don't do that. <laughs> but if the, if the TV and YouTube preachers you're listening to make you the hero of every story in the Bible and not Jesus, they're doing it wrong. Uh, you're not David in the David and Goliath story. <laughs> We're the cowering Israelites who are afraid of Goliath. Jesus is our David. Uh, I'm not the good Samaritan in the good Samaritan story. I'm the man who was beaten and, and left to die by my sin, and Jesus comes along as the good Samaritan and rescues me. If Jesus is not the point of the Bible and the things that we're hearing, you need to throw that garbage away. It's not the truth. Jesus is the point of the scriptures. So if we look at all of our life, all of scriptures through the lens of the crucified one, it will change everything about the way we live, the way we treat others. He goes on in verse 2 and says, let me ask you only this. And this is really funny to me because he says, let me ask you just one thing. And then he asks them five questions. <laughs> he says, let me ask you just one thing. And now I've got five questions for you. Now, real quick, I want to say this. I don't want to confuse these five questions with the first three questions I brought up in the beginning. It could get real, real weird here. So I'm going to take a moment and, and restate those so that we don't confuse those that I stated in the beginning from these here. Those three questions that I think are, are underpinning the entire theme of the book of Galatians are this. What, what must one do to become a Christian? What must one do to stay a Christian? And what must one do to grow or mature as a Christian? Now, those three questions are different from these five that Paul is about to ask because Paul is about to ask these five rhetorically. The answer is apparent for them. And I'll go along and I'll, I'll read them out loud and I'll just give what the answer is, what, what Paul's getting at here as we read them. In verse two, question number one is this. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? The answer is no. They did not come into new life with God by performing the works of the Old Testament law. They became Christians through their faith. Verse number two Verse number three, question number two is this. Are you so foolish? I believe the answer is yes. Question number three. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? The answer is no. The results are in. You are not the Father, as Maury would say. No, you, you are not being perfected by the flesh. Do you really think Paul is saying that, that you started this thing with faith? You got into God's family with faith. Do you really think you're going to keep going by your own human effort? Jesus brought you in. Do you think anything but Jesus is going to take you all the way? The answer is no. Verse 4, did you suffer so many things in vain? The, the kind of suffering that Christians experienced in the first century and experience in other countries in the world is nothing like the suffering that Christians experience here in the United States. In fact, it's incomparable. We have immense and immeasurable freedoms compared to the things that they endured. And so he's reminding them of all that they have suffered so far simply because they believed in Jesus. And he says, was that in vain? Are you about to give up your faith in Jesus and attach yourself to your own human effort as the way to keep going? Why would you do that? Verse 5 is question 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? 
When Paul first began to preach the gospel everywhere he went, we read in the book of Acts that most of the time, what would happen was miracles would take place. People who were sick became healed. People who were blind, their eyes were open. God was doing incredible, and the Bible says, extraordinary miracles through the hands of Paul everywhere he went when he preached the message in a new city that he'd gone to. And Paul says, do you think that all of that stuff happened any other way than by our faith? No, of course not. The answer is, it all comes through faith. Paul's answered his own questions, I believe, by asking them. Here's, here's what he's saying, I think, in these five questions that he's asked, is that you are truly foolish if you think you can remain a Christian by doing something different than what you did to become a Christian. I want to read it again. You, you are truly foolish if you think you can remain a Christian by doing something different than what you did to become a Christian. About five years ago, I lost about 80 pounds in six months. Just one day, it was miraculous. I say to this day, it was the grace of God. I just decided I was going to lose weight. I'd reached 250 pounds, which is how much my dad weighed. Yes, thank you. Praise God. It's how much my dad weighed. And I've always thought this about my dad. My dad's a big guy. And so when I reached my dad's weight, I realized I'm a big guy. My uncle had a heart attack that same week. And, and, uh, I, and he wasn't 50 yet. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm on, I'm on the same way to do that. So, so just one afternoon, I remember it as clear as yesterday. I just told myself, I'm going to change my habits. And I did. I changed the way I ate. And in six months, I lost 80 pounds. And somewhere along the way, I started believing that I could keep the weight off by doing something different than what I did to take the weight off. So in the beginning, I believed that if I change the way I eat, I'll lose weight. And I did. And it felt great. And I, I was so happy that I was able to do that. But after a while, I, I began to, to think to myself, you know, if I just have a whole pizza, I'll still be able to keep this weight off. Now, how foolish was that? Now, obviously, I went back to my old ways, right? How foolish was that of me to think that I could stay thin by doing something different than made me thin? It's the same thing if we think we can stay in God's family by doing something different than how we got into God's family. It's faith that gets us in. It's faith that keeps it. Paul's saying you're, you're not only foolish to think that way, but you're in danger of abandoning the gospel possibly your salvation if you think you have anything to do with it. So how does one become a Christian? It's by faith in the crucified Christ alone and not by our own efforts. How does one stay a Christian? It's by faith in the crucified Christ alone and not by our own efforts. How does one grow or mature as a Christian? It's by faith in the crucified Christ alone and not by our own efforts. There's nothing we can add to it. There's nothing I can do to make God not want to condemn me. Jesus has already done that. Jesus has already taken all of that away. And verse six is where he, he takes them back to the scriptures and he says, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This word counted, we need to understand it, it, it as almost like a banking term. It's as though Abraham's bank was empty. His bank account was empty. Can I get a witness? Anybody? Anybody know what I'm talking about? We've all been there. It's as though his bank account is empty and he's scared to go swipe that card for, for that hot dog at the gas station. 
because of what might happen. Oh man, I left my other card at home. Right? We've all been there, right? Well, it, th- this is what it's like. It's like Abraham's account is empty and he simply believes and God fills it up. He has no righteousness and he simply believes and God fills it up. God credits it to him. He accounts it to him as righteousness. It's as though he'd worked a whole couple weeks and payroll now fills his account with his 80 hours worth of pay into his account. The thing is, he had done nothing but believe and God gave him righteousness simply because he believed. Paul is bringing up Abraham's story to help us see it is the exact same thing for us and our salvation. There's not a work we can do. There's not an effort we can put forth. There's not a a clock that we can punch that will make us righteous. It is only by faith in Jesus. We believe God and God credits it to us as righteousness, just like he did for Abraham. Now, I'll say this as an aside. It doesn't say that Abraham believed in God. It's an important distinction because faith in God is not the right kind of faith that saves us from our sin. The Bible tells us that even demons believe in God. And they probably have stronger faith than we do because they've seen him with their own eyes. It's not simply enough to believe in God. What we must believe God for is the promise he made about our righteousness that Jesus gives it to us. And that is nothing we can do on our own. Abraham is important here in the story because Paul is saying we receive the promise of our righteousness in the same way Abraham received the promise of his righteousness simply by faith. Now, Abraham and his wife Sarah are old when Abraham gets that promise, and they go many years before they ever have a child. They even begin to doubt, and there's some weird stuff that happens there in the meantime that we don't have time to address, but But years go by, and now Abraham is 100 years old, and Sarah is 90 years old, and they still don't have a child. And I wonder how many of us have maybe been Christians for years, and there's still that thing that it just seems like no matter what, I can't defeat that, I can't get rid of that, I can't can't let go of that, and we're just wondering if God is ever going to do something for us in that God has promised us that our destiny is to become like Jesus. He will be the one who makes it like that. God promised Abraham that his destiny was to become the father of a multitude of people. And here he is, 100 years old, and his wife Sarah, 90 years old, and they have a son. And they name him Isaac, which means laughter, which when you think about a 90-year-old and a 100-year-old procreating, it's both hilarious and disgusting. I wonder what... What the Hebrew word for disgusting is. Maybe that's Isaac's middle name. Isaac disgusting Abrahamson. Now think about that. Physically impossible. I don't want to judge them, but that's what we're assuming here, right? 100 years old, 90 years old. Physically impossible for them to procreate. I I watched my wife give birth two and a half months ago, and she's in her 20s. I can't imagine. And the toll that took on a 25-year-old for for a 90-year-old to go through, uh, oh my gosh, (laughs) devastating. The toll it takes on the husband, nobody ever talks about that. (laughs) The toll it took on Abraham, he's like, whoa, (laughs) miracle of childbirth, you're kidding me. But it was truly a miracle. 
physically impossible for them to procreate, and yet they did. God did a complete miracle that had absolutely nothing to do with anything that they could have done to make it happen because their bodies were incapable of making children at that point. This is a great foreshadowing of another miracle birth that we see later on in the scriptures and in the history of mankind where a young virgin named Mary is visited by an angel and told by that angel, Mary, you're going to have a son. And she says, how can this be? I know how babies are made. I read the back of the biology textbook. I know, I know how babies are made and that's never happened with me. How, how, how's this supposed to be? And the angel says to her, God is going to perform a miracle in your womb and you're gonna give birth to a son and you're gonna call him Jesus and he will save the world from their sins. It's the same kind of miracle that God does in us and what we call the new birth being born again, and that there's absolutely nothing we contribute to that other than believing that God changes us and makes us his and makes us new. There's nothing we add to it. Just as Abraham and Sarah were helpless and completely incapable of procreating, we're helpless, completely incapable of attaining or keeping our own salvation. The book of Jude says that we are kept by God's power. We're not kept because we've held on to Jesus tight enough. We're not kept because we did all of the right things and God is pleased with me. We're kept because of God's power and the crucified one, Jesus, demands that we stay his. He won't let us go. Now, Abraham, some years later, Isaac is a young boy, and God speaks to him one day and says to him, Abraham, it's a good way to start a conversation, the person's name, Abraham, and Abraham says, yes, Lord. Abraham, I want you to take your son Isaac, your only son, the son you love, the son I promised you, the son that is your key to having descendants as numerous as the stars in the night sky. I want you to take him, walk him up beside a mountain, and sacrifice him there to me. And Abraham, the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 22, gets up early the next morning, saddles his donkey, gathers wood for a sacrifice, a knife to slay his son with, packs it in the donkey, grabs his son Isaac and says, son, we're going to go sacrifice up on the mountain today. So they go up on the side of the mountain and halfway there, Isaac realizes there's no sacrifice. <laughs> he says to his father, father, I see... I see the wood and I see the, the knife for the sacrifice, but where, where's the sacrifice at? And I can imagine he begins to apologize for all of the bad things he'd done that week. And Abraham says this to, to Isaac. Abraham, uh, Isaac, God's going to provide a sacrifice. He gets up to the top of the mountain and he actually ties his son down on an altar there. What does that conversation look like? We don't get a glimpse into that, but he ties his son onto an altar and he reaches out to grab the knife. And as he's reaching for the knife to slay his son and sacrifice him to God as God had commanded him to do, an angel reaches out and stops Abraham's hand. And God says to him, stop Abraham. I just wanted to test you and see if you really feared me. It's really easy to look at that story and see Abraham as one who has 
been given this promise by God. And now God has said, I want you to sacrifice it to me. I used to look at this story and just be enamored by Abraham's obedience and say to myself, I need to be as obedient as Abraham. I need to get up early the next morning and do whatever God tells me to do, even if it is the most unthinkable thing. And then I realized over time that I'm just not that obedient. (laughs) I like to do my own thing way too much. It's really hard for me to be as obedient as Abraham. It's impossible for me to be as obedient as Abraham. Sometimes I've looked at that story as a great example of what we can sacrifice to God. Like the song we sang, take it all, take it all, Jesus. I'll give it all to you. I want to sacrifice it all to you. It's easy to look at that story as an example of that. Sometimes you just got to give God the things you love so much. Sometimes you just love them so much, you got to give them all to God. Here's the problem with that. What, what's happening when we do that with that story is that I'm making it all about me. Remember the Bible's all about Jesus? Hebrews chapter 11 tells us what's really happening here. What, what God saw when Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son to him. Hebrews 11, verse 17 says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. It was by faith. It was not because of extreme obedience. It was not because of a willingness to sacrifice anything to God because he's so worthy. It was by faith. When he was tested, he offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises, Abraham receiving that promise that that he'll have numerous descendants one day. And he's about to lose that promise if he sacrifices his son. He was in the act of offering up his only son, verse 18, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Isaac is the key to the fulfillment of God's promise that he made to Abraham. And now Abraham's about to lose all of that. Talk about obedience and a sacrifice, right? Verse 19, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Abraham's not being obedient. He's not just being super obedient. He's not just making an awesome sacrifice. He believes that God's going to raise him from the dead. God promised him to me, and if I take his life, God will raise him back from the dead. That doesn't sound like obedience or, or sacrificial living to me. It sounds like faith. Faith got Abraham the promise. Faith kept Abraham the promise. And that promise of of offspring or descendants through Isaac wasn't even so that Abraham, so the people would one day sing a weird song about Father Abraham. It had nothing to do with that. The, The promise inside that promise was that one day all the nations of the world would be blessed through Abraham's descendants. What does that mean? It's back to that baby who was born of that virgin Mary, the blessing for all the world. It all comes back to Jesus every time. Every story in the Bible finds its way in Jesus, whether you start in Genesis or all the way at the end, it all finds its way in Jesus. Why? Because he's the only answer God has for all of our problems. He's the only way to salvation. He's the only way to stay in God's family. It has nothing to do with what you and I can do or not do. It's all by our faith in him. So how do I become a Christian? I suspect some of you in the room today or watching online are asking that very question. How do I become a Christian? We are really glad that you're here 
In fact, we do a lot of what we do to make a space comfortable enough for you to feel like you could come in and actually sit in church and hear these things about Jesus. And if you have that question, how do I become a Christian? The answer is you just trust in the crucified one, Jesus Christ, and you let go of all your own efforts. The question, how do I stay a Christian? And I've like been a part of the church long enough to know that many of us go through seasons where we wonder that very thing. How in the world could I ever stay, keep doing this? How, 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 can, I, how can I, it's so hard sometimes. How, how can I keep doing it? My faith feels really weak today. How can I keep doing it? The answer, how do I stay a Christian is by faith in the crucified one, Jesus Christ, and not by trusting in our own efforts. And some of us, I, I hope this question is being asked by some of us. How do I grow as a Christian? How do I mature as a Christian? The answer is, it's by faith in the crucified one, Jesus Christ, and not by my own efforts. Because here's what happens when I place my faith in him and I keep him at the forefront of my thoughts and I, and I remember that Jesus died for me and that there's nothing I could do to make me more acceptable to God. There's nothing I can do to, to make him love me more. He loves me and accepts me as completely as he possibly ever could. So I'm good, completely good with God. How do I grow though? That's the question. It's by keeping my faith in Jesus who when I trust him and follow him, he somehow miraculously can increase my patience. He somehow miraculously can help me make better decisions. He somehow miraculously can help me sin less today than I did yesterday. It has nothing to do with, with bearing down and, and trying as hard as I can to do better. It has everything to do with, am I trusting in Jesus as the only one who can carry me all the way? So it's my prayer that that is what we will leave here today with, a complete trust in Jesus alone, not in our own works, not in our own righteousness, not in our own uh, ability to, to do a good job, not in our checklists that we're doing all the right things. Man, I prayed yesterday. I read my Bible every day last week. I haven't missed church in six weeks. Yeah, God doesn't care about those things when it comes to our salvation. When it comes to our salvation, what God cares about is, do I trust that Jesus has made me good with God? Would you pray with me? Lord, I'm so thankful that you have made all of us good with God. There is nothing standing between us and you, that there's nothing you're holding against us that... you've made us completely clean that you have washed away all of our sins the Bible says it's as though we come to you with, with stained clothing and you give us brand new clothes that we don't have to walk around ashamed anymore because of what you've done for us Lord, we're so thankful that that's what you do we, I pray today that you will help us to trust in you Lord, if there's one thing we give up today pray it's our self-reliance. I pray it's our self-righteousness. Lord, we'll never fail if we trust in you. You're the safest place to go. You're the most trustworthy place to go. So in Jesus' name, I ask that you will help us to stay focused on you as the one who takes us all the way. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name.
Thanks for joining with us today. We would love to pray for you and make a connection with you. So please check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Here you can ask questions, request prayer, find past messages and podcasts, or support Renaissance through online giving. We can't wait to hear from you.